0: My name is Mike Rutledge. I'm uh, the director of Arts, one of the teachers here. and um, you know after hearing uh, Dick's testimony, if you were here for that and then just even the scripture being read, uh, I feel like you could stop the service and go home. such such good stuff. Thanks uh, Dick, for sharing that story with us. Um, you know, I, I love the Old Testament. Um, and I, I think the, probably the primary reason that I like the Old Testament so much is, because it's so filled with stories, right? Just, just and, not, and that, you know, everyone loves to be read to. Remember when you were a kid and your parents or your teacher would read to you? I don't think that goes away as you get older. I just think we like stories. But what's cool about the Old Testament is, is that it's not just stories. These are true stories that happened, and the stories actually have principles that we can extrapolate from the story and apply to our lives, and as a result... Live more godly and God-centered lives, and uh, so I think when I think through the Old Testament, the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, as they're called in Veggie Tales. Um, <laughs> true fact. Uh, it's one that's definitely one of my favorite stories for a lot of reasons. We'll get into that in a little bit, but um, you know. And, and what we want to do is, as we look at the story, I want to try and pull pieces out that we can apply to our lives and see what, what that means as we focus in on today's topic. Now, we're starting a new series today, and that series is going to go for three weeks, two more weeks after this one. Next week, Derek uh, is going to pick up as we talk about the nature of God. That's what we're looking at. And uh, we're, we're going to, uh, next week, be looking at the triunity, or the trinity, or the trinity, how God is three-in-one, kind of like my body wash in the, in the shower. Um, and uh, the week after that, we're going to be diving into understanding uh, God and his sense of justice. Now, you, you, know, you look around the world today, and you don't have to look very far to see so many injustices happening, right? There's human trafficking, and there are cartels that are rising up, and senseless... Uh, violence and, and and people just doing terrible things. And when you look at this around the world, you have to sort of make sense of how, if God is just, is our world so unjust, right? Well, we're going to look at that in a couple weeks. This week, we're going to be looking at the holiness. And, you know, it's interesting um, when, you know, as you read through the scriptures, let me ask you this. When, when, don't answer this out loud, but think about this. How often do you just stop yourself and think, Huh, let me just contemplate God's nature. (laughs) I mean, I do every day, all day, because I'm a pastor, but the rest of you, right? Uh, In all honesty, you know, I mean, if I asked you to get out a pen and take your program and just write all of the attributes and the characteristics that are essential to make up the nature of who God is, I wonder what our list would look like. You know, when you read through God's Word, you find you know, about his omnipotence, his omnipotence, his om- omnipresence, his beneficence, his, you know, he, he's zenial he's in nature, he's zealous and righteous and just and, and infallible and reverent and hallowed, and, you know, and the list goes on, eminence. As a matter of fact, it's really interesting, there arose a tradition in the Jewish faith, uh, surrounding his name because Exodus 27 says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And the Jewish culture, it wasn't a law, it was just a, a like a routine or a, a practice that, that began. They would not use the name of Yahweh because it was so holy. It's like, I can't remember the name, that, like Harry Potter has a character, the name that shall not be uttered or something like that. Well, Yahweh was truly that. They wouldn't say his name because they were afraid of profaning it, right? Which is a pretty significant deal. And so that tradition rose. but what's, when you look at God's nature, one of the cool things is you look at this balance. Like God is just, but he's also gracious. That's part of his nature. And, and he's, he's uh, holy, but he's forgiving. And he's loving, but he's zealous, right? And these things sort of balance each other out when you look at uh, the nature of God and who he is. Now, obviously, over the next three weeks, it would be pretty impossible to come up trying to cover even just the list that I shared with you, you know, let alone all of the other attributes that make God who he is. Today, we're just going to be looking at his holiness, and then over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at those, his trini- the, the nature of his trinity and the nature of his justice. And so, when, and, and interesting, when you, when you look at holiness which is what we're going to focus on today with God. Holiness is a chief attribute of God. It's, it's a very important to understand. It's a chief attribute of God. Uh, Psalm 93.5 says, the nature of your reign is holiness. Okay, that's, that's what it says. And holiness and the, and the uh, adjective holy actually occur in the Bible over 900 times. And I tell people, when you are reading God's word, and you see something that's repeated, it's not by accident. It's because the author is trying to emphasize something. And when you look at the whole of the Bible and you understand that that word holiness or holy occurs overnight, almost a thousand times in the Bible. It's, very, it's like you're telling your kids, how many times have I told you? Right? <laughs> I'm always saying apparently not. One time, not enough or something. But, so when you see repeated characteristics and things mentioned like holiness, understand It's very, very important for us to get our brains wrapped around what that means. And so, again, the word holiness, uh, the the, uh, Hebrew word, kodesh, actually uh, means apartness or separateness. It means consecrated or set apart for a specific purpose, dedicated to or sacred. Um, And I'll share this with you. When I, um, my wife and I had met and we were in that, are we dating, are we not dating phase? You remember that? (laughs) Yeah, I hated that, but anyway, um, and, and I played, I got asked to play guitar at, at a retreat, and so I went, I sat up and everything, and and uh, so we were talking at, at the retreat, and, and she said to me, so I had two guitars there, and she said, so how come you have two guitars, and I answered an offensive, in an, an offensive way, I didn't mean it to be, I just thought it was the right answer, she's like, so why do you have two guitars, I'm like, well, they sound different, right, because I didn't know if she knew that, but The reason, and I have actually over time, because I do music all the time, I have a few more guitars, but all of my guitars have unique features about them. They're all kind of set aside for certain things. I have a Telecaster with a hip shot B-bender. Probably doesn't mean much to you. It means a lot to me because it helps me play country music. All right? I have a Frankenstrat that has a big, you know, whammy bar on it. I use that when I try to sound like Van Halen. Okay? (laughs) So, but if I used... If I use my telly to sound like Van Halen, it doesn't work, and if I use vice versa, it doesn't work. So understand that they have specific purposes. Let me give you another example of being set apart for something special. Now I don't know how many of you did this when you got engaged, but my wife and I did. We were in Detroit and or the Detroit area, and we got engaged, and so we went to Hudson's and we registered for wedding gifts, right? And so the way they did it back then, at least, now that was a while ago, they give you this scanning gun, and you kind of walk around, I'll take that, 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 that. Ksh. and in the scan, scanning gun, you take it, and they plug it in or whatever, and it spits out this list, this digital list of all the things that you want, or that you're going to, you plan to purchase for your house and your life together. And uh, then when people want to go, you invite them to the wedding, and it's, you know, Says we're registered at Hudson's, and people could go and they could go. Oh, they want this, and they would buy it for us. Well, one of the things we bought, uh, we registered for, was fine china. All right. Well, we have our everyday china. Well, actually, we don't even have that anymore. It's all broken and whatever. Right? Twenty plus years of I don't know if we're hard eaters or something. I'm not sure. But so we don't have that anymore. But we still have our fine china because our fine china is set apart for special occasions. As a matter of fact, we have a china cabinet. Guess what goes in the china cabinet? The fine china. And then when we invite people over for special occasions or Christmas Eve, we always pull out the fine china. And Thanksgiving dinner, we pull out the fine china. Otherwise, it gets tucked back in the china cabinet because it's set aside for something special. Even in the Old Testament, you see that they had specific objects that were set aside. Like they had utensils that were in the holy of holies that they, you know, they didn't get the holy of holy knife to spread mustard on their salami sandwich because it wasn't set for that, right? They had spe- specific purposes that these things were for, okay? So, understanding that holiness means it's set apart for something specific and it's pure in its nature. It's purely designed for this thing. And we, we think of, by the way, we think of purity in an interesting way. I remember uh, I'd be at the store, and, and Susie would call me, and she'd say, hey, will you grab some juice for the kids when they're really little? Yeah, and say, hey, don't get the junky stuff. Get the pure juice, right? So I would look at it and would say, with 100% pure juice. So I'd grab that, and I'd bring it home. She'd what would you get this for? And I'm like, it said, look, right there. Say, look at the back, and it's got all this other stuff. like, well, it said it was pure. I don't know. Or like, how ridiculous to think we drink tap water these days, right? No, no, we have to drink bottled water, by the way, and it can't be in the heat or else it'll leach into the water, right? <laughs> that's pure water. And I don't know if you know this, but sodium-free has, I think, five milligrams of sodium per serving. How do you call something sodium-free that has sodium in it, right? Well, that's, this is important for us to understand, when we talk about God's purity, there's Five grams or five milligrams of nothing but what he says. That's what purity is. Understanding that being set apart for something means we are completely pure and there's nothing but what God designed in it. And so today, we're going to look at holiness and the nature of God being holy, but not only under, trying to understand that, also trying to understand how does that impact me? What should that mean in my life? And I want to share four things with you. They're in your programs if you're a note taker, so you can fill in the blank if you want to do that. The first is this. God's nature is holy. Again, let's look at Psalm 93, verse 5. It says this in the NIV version, "'Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days.'" Holiness adorns your house. Where's his house? His house is where he is, Why is it adorned with holiness? Because he's holy, and where he is, holiness is. I love the NLT, the New Living Translation, says it this way. Your royal decrees cannot be changed. The nature of your reign, O Lord, is holiness forever. He reigns in holiness forever. He is holy. And when you read through Scripture, you run across... These interesting encounters where humans actually encounter God directly. I don't mean they read like a book about him or they, you know, I mean they actually encounter God. And it's always uh, fascinating to see what happens. And I want to look at one of those. And it's in Isaiah. And it's Isaiah actually encountering God, chapter six, verses one through six. Look at this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, "Holy, holy, holy is Lord Almighty, The whole earth is full of His glory." At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. "Woe to me!" I cried, "I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. All right. Let me explain this to you, uh, this scene. So Isaiah has a vision of God in the throne room. And he sees God seated. It says in majesty. It's this majestic experience of God sitting on a throne in His robes. And uh, you know, for all of you who've been married, you know, women who have your beautiful long train, it says His train actually filled the throne room. It was like everywhere. This glorious, majestic-looking thing. And with Him are these things called the seraphim. And seraphim are as best. It actually means fiery ones. That's what the term means. And so it kind of looks like they're probably sort of flaming on fire, sort of. But they looked human in nature, and they're angelic beings who have six wings. And with their wings, they fly around the throne room ready to, you know, at the king's service, ready to serve him. And with two wings, they cover their eyes. With two, they cover their feet, and the other two help them fly around. And I don't know, um, you know, don't build a theology on what I'm about to say here, but I I don't know exactly why they're covering their eyes, their their faces, with uh, two of their wings. Um, It may be, like in Exodus 33, we have another encounter where Moses wants to see God, and God says, well, I can't let you see my face, because if I do, you'll die. And so he puts him in a cave, and he walks past, and he covers it until he's passed, so Moses can only see his back. So it may be that the glory and the holiness of God is too much for humanity to take in without dying. (laughs) So maybe it's that, I don't know. And then they cover their feet. You Remember Moses also had the burning bush experience, right? And the bush is burning and he tells him to do what? Take off your sandals because this is holy ground. It's where God is, it's holy. So it may have something to do with reverence and respect out of holiness, I don't know. But what I do know is as they're flying around this throne room, they're declaring to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory, Right? And what's amazing in this encounter is that the voice of the angels declaring his holiness is so overwhelming, it starts to shake the very foundations of the throne room. It says it it shook. Now, my best image of this is, I think it was in like somewhere around 1970, Grand Funk Railroad played Shea Stadium. Uh, 55,000 seats. They sold it out faster than the Beatles. Yeah, right. I would love that on my resume. Anyway, they're playing Shea Stadium, and the people are so crazy. You look at the, you know, mezzanine level where the, all the bleachers are, and the bleachers are actually shaking like they're going to fall down because they're rocking so hard in there. This is my version of the earthly experience of what happened. They're saying, holy, 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 and the whole thing is shaking like it's going to explode, Right? And then what happens, which is really interesting, is that Isaiah, upon seeing the glory and holiness of this God and the angelic beings and all of this experience, he's immediately struck with the otherness of God and the complete holiness of God to the point where he says, I'm ruined. What does ruined mean? The, the Hebrew word dama, it actually means to cease, to cause to cease, to destroy, perish. He literally says, I'm a goner. I'm done. I'm dead. Why? Because I've seen the glory of God and his holiness. And he understands that compared to God, his best holiness is Nothing. And only through the angel flying, he goes to the sacred place and uses tongs to pick up a coal off of the altar, a sacred place. He touches Moses' lips, or uh, Isaiah's lips, and says, You're clean now. Not because of anything you did, but because God decided to clean you. Right? God is completely different than us, and He's completely holy. Now, but what's important for us to understand is that there's not a bunch of holy people like that, holy beings like that. There's one. Look at Exodus 15, 11. It says this, and this is a rhetorical question, by the way, so the answer is supposed to be obvious. It says, Who among the gods, small g, is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? The answer is no one. And then you look at 1 Samuel 2:2. It says, There is no one, Holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Understand that God is holy. No one else, no other being in all of creation, in all of everything that's ever been, is holy like him. That's the first thing. So the first, God is holy. The second thing I want us to understand is that our sin or unholiness separates us from him. Our sin or unholiness separates us from him. Look at uh, Isaiah 59 two. It says this, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face. Again, the idea of hiding his, the glory of his face from you so that he will not hear. See, on Isaiah, had just, we just read the Isaiah passage and right. His unholiness made him feel separated from God until God acted on his behalf to bring him back into community with him. Look at this passage. The passage that uh, we read at the beginning, Casey read this passage in Daniel. It's very fascinating. Like I said, it's one of my favorite passages, uh, one of my favorite stories of the Old Testament. But here's, here's something that's really important to know. Um, understanding that your sin separates you from God um, and your unholiness separates from you, God. It, as you read through the Old Testament, a pattern, a regular pattern occurred, and that's this, that when Israel was following God and had a godly leader, a godly ruler, they flourished and prospered and good things happened. However, when Israel was not following God, they allowed themselves to be defiled and they intermarried with other nations, which they were told not to, and they allowed practices of pagan worship and things like that, And the king was unholy. Guess what happened? Bad things, and they fell into captivity, like in Egypt. Well, we're picking up right here in Babylonian captivity, right around uh, 600 B.C. But before that even happens, these years before, around 775, about 100, you know, I don't know, 175, 150 years before that. You remember, um, remember this guy Jonah who gets eaten by the big fish? Well, let me help you just contextualize this. Jonah gets, remember where he gets sent? Nineveh, right. He gets sent to Nineveh. Well, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, okay? And in 775, when Jonah is sent, Nineveh is epically known and renowned for their cruelty to humans, Like, it's a miserable place and terrible people who are wicked and cruel. And so God says, go there. And Jonah's like, no, I'm not going there. I'm going somewhere else on a boat. I'm going to escape you because I don't want them to, you know, they can kill their own people. I don't have to go there to be killed, right? That's kind of what's in his mind. Well, so you know the rest of the story. Anyway, he ends up going after, after trying to escape God. It doesn't work so well. But here's what happens Somewhere around 625, the Babylonian Empire rebels against Assyria and actually takes captive Nineveh, the capital. And by 605, they've moved on to conquer Egypt, and they become the heavyweight champions of the whole world, as far as anyone can tell. They're running the table. It's at that point that Daniel, Rack, Shaq, and Benny are taken into captivity into the king's service, okay? Now, just bear in mind, Nebuchadnezzar is a king at this time in Babylon. Not a good guy, okay? Really violent, a little bit, right? So, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into Babylonian captivity. And what happens is that they... Uh, are brought in, and I want to demonstrate as we look at what happens, even in that first chapter we read, you need to understand that culture, that that actually your holiness is at war with your culture. And it's true in this passage as well. They get taken into this new culture, and that culture says, we want you to have nothing to do with the holiness of God. We want you to be like us. Look at what happens. The first thing... Uh, that culture does to us is it provides opportunity, right? We have opportunities. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm saying there's anything wrong with opportunity. There's not. Opportunity is great. What's right or wrong is how we, A, pursue it and how we handle it. If you try to pursue it by sacrificing your holiness, God does not smile upon that, God wants us to stay true to him even when opportunity happens. And you've seen this, you know, you have a chance to get an advantage in something and it's going to cost you a little bit of your soul, you know. And you're like, wow. And you're forced, you're you're at a crossroads where you need to decide. What's more important, my holiness or my personal advantage? See, because culture wants to replace holiness with selfishness and vanity. So what happens is Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel are taken because they so it says they're like they're like the studs of the studs, they're the most handsome, they're the most educated. They they probably looked just like Dave Nelson. <laughs> right? And so the Babylonian king says, Get all these Nelson-looking guys and bring them in. They're coming into my service, right? And they become the king's servants. At the highest level, they're presented with an opportunity. Ah, here's the catch. They try and twist some things around on them, but they stay true. So the opportunity happens. What happens once they're in? It is that culture wants to change your customs or reacclimate you to new customs. And it's really interesting. It, if they spend three years, they make them learn the Babylonian language and the Babylonian culture and the Babylonian religion. They're trying to reacclimate them to go, okay, I know you had that, now we want you to do this. But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we'll learn the stuff, but we're not walking away from what we know is right. Not only did they just try and reeducate them, they tried to actually change their diet. They offered them the best food from the king's own table. And they say, no, 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 no. We have very clear dietary regulations laid out by God. That's vegetables and water. That's what we're going to eat. And then they hold true to that. And what happens? Even though they're given this opportunity to advance themselves through obedience to the Babylonian Empire, they say, no, we're going we're to stay true to God. What happens? They get promoted because at the end of the 10-day trial period, they look better than everyone else. So it tries to not only does it... Provide opportunity, tries to change your customs. And then, this is really important culture wants to rename you, it wants to give you a new name. Now, the names of these four characters in this scripture are very, just, you should know this too. In Hebrew culture, names weren't just like Skippy and Bob. Like they came, they had mean, and if your name is Skippy or Bob, it's a great name, okay? So I don't mean any disrespect. I'm just saying. They, ha- they would name someone with something that was associated with who they were and who they were to be, right? So like, for instance, Daniel and Mishael, the, the suffix of the name E-L had reference to Elohim, the God, so there's something very sacred about their names being associated with God. And then you have Hananiah and Azariah, Ia or Yah is the end. Yahweh, their name had something to do with being dedicated to Yahweh. That's how they did it, okay? And what the culture did with these guys, Babylon says, we've got to give these guys new names. Well, look at the names they give them. Daniel, whose name meet, meant means God is my judge, he gets renamed Belteshazzar. And Bel, who was one of the chief gods of Babylonian culture, they, they call him Belteshazzar, meaning Bel protects his life. So instead of God as my judge, Bel protects me. Well, if, he, if I can be protected, maybe I don't need this judge. See how that happens? Now, look at, look at this. Mishael, who is what God is, they change to who is as Aku is. That's what Meshach means. And, and, and Aku was the moon god. So they try and give him a new god. And the Hananiah, God has been gracious is changed to Shadrach, which means command of the moon god. God is gracious, you're under the command of the moon god. And this one's maybe the worst of all, Azariah becomes Abednego. Azariah means God, or Yah, has helped and he becomes slave of the god Nebo. Nebo was another one of the deities in Babylon. Not only has God, forget God helping you, you're a slave to this. This and didn't matter to them what the culture tried to what name the culture tried to put on them they said i don't care i know who i am and here's what i want you to understand about this in our culture today culture wants to put a name on you loser failure success good looking intelligent and when we put our value in who culture wants to rename us rather than who God designed us to be. It takes us away from being holy and devoted to his service and focused on what we can do for ourselves. It's a terrible practice. Our, our very identity should be found in God and who he's made us to be. So it tries to rename or it separates us from, from uh, him. The third thing is this, that God desires relationship with you. Look at this verse in Isaiah 57. Verse 15 says this, The high and the lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. By the way, contrite just means very sorry for what we've done that hasn't been right, that we haven't done right. Sorry for having behaved wrongly would be a way of saying that. This verse sums up Part, this part of God's nature and his character in such a beautiful way, it says the high and the lofty one, the holy one, he lives in holy places, but he's not content to live there alone. He wants to live with us. Who does he want to live with? Those who are contrite and humble. He wants to be in, in relationship with us. And then it says this, why does he want to live it? with us in order to revive our spirit and revive our heart. And here's what you need to understand. When we wander away from the purpose that God gave us, the holy nature that he wanted us to live in, and we replace it with the names that culture gives us, our heart stops beating and our spirit dies because we're living outside of who we're meant to be. And God, in his holiness, says, I want to live with you And I want to revive your spirit. I want to breathe life back into you. Our spirits need reviving because we've not done as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And we've allowed ourselves to be defiled by the food of the culture. And defiled by the rewards of the culture. And defiled by the rank of the culture. And defiled by the names that we've accepted. The false self. God wants to bring us back to life. So he calls us to holiness. And it says in Corinthians 5, Galatians 5, that a little leaven does what? Our little yeast does what? Leavens the whole batch of dough. And the problem that we have too often is we want God so much as long as we just bring the yeast with us. And then we become like the juice that I bought that says 100% juice, but when I flip around at the back, it's like anything but real juice. And then your wife's going to yell at you, so don't do that. Anyway, we need to be pure before God. And look at this. This is the last one. God, wants, God calls us to holiness. Not only does he want to commune with us, he calls us to holiness. This is really, really important for us to understand. First Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holiness. Now I want you to understand, God's holiness, not only as we've just talked about, is on your behalf to bring, revive your heart and to revive your soul and revive your spirit and bring you back to life. It's, it is that. It's not only that. Your holiness presents a holy God to those around us. When you are holy, living this way, and people observe your life, you're demonstrating God's nature to others. Let's go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. Now, again, I said this king is a little, you know, out there with some of his thoughts. And let me me show you what happens and how this plays out. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream after they've been taken in, and they've been promoted once. And then they, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it's kind of a wacky dream. And it's about this image. It's got a gold head and, like, all these different metals. And they get, the metals get worse and worse as it goes down to the feet. And he has this dream. And he's really disturbed by it. And so he wakes up, uh, and he, he can't get the dream out of his mind. And so he calls all of his astrologers and magicians and soothsayers and all these things. He says, I want you to tell me what my... <laughs> okay, really? Tell me what my dream was, and then tell me what it means. Okay, unfair, right? But that's what he says. And so, but none of those people can do it. They're like, we don't know. I don't know. How are we supposed to know that? We can't, I don't know. And so he says in his great wisdom, all right, perfect. You don't know. I'm going to kill you all. And so Daniel says, hold on. Why don't you let me pray to God and see if God will reveal to me what your dream was? And so he calls, first thing, next thing he does is he calls Rack, and Benny. He says, Pray. And they do, and God reveals the dream to him, and he reveals the interpretation, and he go, so he goes back to King Nebuchadnezzar. He goes, okay, uh, king, here's, here's what the dream is. And he, he lays out the dream, and he goes, and here's the terp- interpretation. By the way, it's not a great interpretation. He goes, here, you're at the top right now, but eventually it's going to road and you're going to not be in power anymore, and you won't be able to overcome who is. <laughs> okay, so he gives the king this bad, you know, interpretation. The king, though, is so moved... By knowing that uh, Daniel could interpret the dream, which, by the way, Daniel says, hey, just so you know, this isn't because I'm super smart. This is because God revealed this to me. He's very clear about this. This isn't me. This is God. And Daniel uh, reveals this to him, and then Nebuchadnezzar says, he says this, truly your God, capital G, is the God, capital G, of all gods, small G." Nebuchadnezzar sees Daniel's holiness and affiliates that with the God who he serves, and he goes, that's the real God. And then the next thing Nebuchadnezzar does, builds a 90-foot statue of himself and tells people to worship it. He didn't fully understand it quite yet. (laughs) So then he goes, all right, now, when the statue, we're going to march this beautiful image of me around town, and when you hear these instruments play, everyone's going to bow down and worship me. Guess what Rackshack and Benny say? Nope. Now, again, they say nope to the king who wants to just off everyone who doesn't do whatever he says, right? So you need to understand the stakes are high in this. This isn't some flipping decision. They're like, hey, I'll, I'll die for this. I'm going to remain holy to my God. So they don't. He sees this. He says, I'll give you one last chance. You can bow now. And they're like, no, we're not doing it. He says to them, seriously? I'm going to throw you into the furnace. They're like, yeah. And they have the audacity before they're thrown. They go, hey, by the way, we know the God we serve. And he can save us if he wants to. P.S., he's gonna. Makes the king so mad, he heats the fire. I don't know if they had thermostats, but this is him heating the fire up. He heats the fire up like extra hot throws them in, and he sees them that they don't die. And he's like, all right, get them out. And again, he makes a decree. Hey, if anyone says any bad, any bad thing about this God, kill them all. Again, kind of close, but not quite on point with what he was supposed to learn. But he affiliates the holiness of these three with the God they serve and the ability of this God to protect and, and, and sustain. Your holiness before those around you demonstrates the holiness of the God you serve. And when you allow yourself to be defiled, those that witness your behavior will begin to believe in a defiled God. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to close this morning and have the band come forward, and we're going to transition into musical worship. And we're also going to take our offering, and so I'm going to invite the greeters to come forward. and Greeters, as soon as you're up, you can... Just go ahead and start passing. And I, I just I just want to say this. I say this all the time. You know, there's many ways to give. You can give online or you can give, you know, um, automatic pay if you want. But I don't ever want you to feel like K2 is pressuring you to give. I don't I, that that couldn't be further from the truth. K2 wants to provide an opportunity for you to worship through your finances as God has provided and you faithfully give back. It's called stewardship, and the tithe is 10%. So we want to invite you to do that here. And we're going to continue. Uh, closing. But here's what I want to remind you of. First, God is holy. Our unholiness separates us from Him, but He wants to be in relationship, and He calls us to live holy lives. Let me just say this Your holiness or attempt at holiness is not in order to earn anything, it is in response to God's work on your behalf. Okay? I can't say that more plainly or emphatically. Your holiness will never, your personal holiness as you desire to work your way to God will never make it. We desire to be holy as a means of saying thank you for what you've done. I want to respect and honor you and be holy before you, okay? Just you need to hear that. God is holy. We're separated from him by our unholiness. He calls us to holiness because he wants to be in relationship with us. And so here's what I want to say. Some of us here this morning, you've not even taken that first step of accepting Christ into your life and you've never taken the first step of allowing gods It's called imputed holiness. That's the theological word. That means he takes his righteousness and he puts it on you like the picture of Isaiah with the tongs touching your lips to say, "I'm gonna, I'm purifying you. Some of you have not taken that first step and that, if, if that's you, your step today is to say, hey, I want to receive Christ. I want to receive you in my life. I want your holiness in my life. Then I want to responsibly try and be holy before you. Some of us here, maybe you examine your life. You look at the things, the way you're living, some of the behaviors you're allowing to occupy your time or drive your intentions. And maybe there are some things you need to confess before God and say, God, I'm not staying holy for you. I'm presenting a God that's defiled to my people around me and I'm not living the life, my heart isn't even beating because I'm not living a holy life. Maybe for some of you, you have a person in your mind, you're feeling, oh, I know this person, they're just not following Jesus and I so want them to know Jesus and you just want to pray for them. Or there could be a hundred other things, so here's what I want you to ask yourself. I just want you to ask yourself this. Actually, don't ask yourself. Ask God this. God, right now, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to know about holiness? God will reveal himself to you. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to give you a minute to just meditate and contemplate, and then I'm going to close in prayer, and we're going to enter into a beautiful time of worshiping this holy God who wants nothing more than to be in community with you as we respond. So take a minute and ask him, and then I'll close in prayer. God, you alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are holy. You alone are our heart's desire. And in this time right now, as we fall before you, if you were anything like us, you wouldn't be worth the time of day in our worship, but you're not. So we lift our voices in this moment to praise the holiness of who you are and thank you for the great gift you've given to us. And I pray that in this moment, you would reveal yourself to us. Help us be clear. What do you want us to know? What do you want us to do about holiness before you? Lead us and guide us. Help us to be humble and to receive and to be obedient. Take this time and draw us closer to you. Thank you for your love. And we ask this in your name.